welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star, then zero on your touchtone telephone. And as a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Sandra, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop, Living with Metastatic Breast Cancer. And this program is one that um, is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many, many other uh, breast cancer organizations and other cancer organizations as well. But we have quite a, lot, a large number of breast cancer organizations that also have collaborated on this program today. And because of that collaboration and your interest in the program today, we have over 596 participants on the call. So there's a lot of you on the call. And you come from all over the United States primarily, um, from different regions of this country, and from uh, different types of communities, from both um, urban, rural, and suburban communities. And we also happen to have today on the call a number of uh, international participants from Belgium, Canada, Germany, India, Manila, Sweden, Taiwan, Uganda, and United Kingdom. So we really have uh, people from all over the world on the call. And today's uh, program is supported by Celgene Corporation, ISI Inc., and Syndex Pharmaceuticals Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of the program. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Generosa Grana. Dr. Grana is Medical Director, MD Anderson Cancer Center at Cooper, Division Head, Hematology and Medical Oncology, the Cooper Health System, Professor of Medicine, Cooper Medical School at Rowan University. And Dr. Grana is going to be addressing overview of advances in the treatment of metastatic breast cancer, the role of genomic testing and understanding your metastatic breast cancer and its treatment options, diagnostic testing and technologies, why they are important, and precision medicine, examples of new treatment approaches. It's really my, now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Grana. Thank you very much, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm going to start by giving you a brief overview of metastatic breast cancer and then get into the whole concept of genomics and genetics and personalized medicine. Metastatic breast cancer is disease that has spread to distant sites. It could be lymph nodes, bone, lung, liver, brain, or any of a multitude of sites. And typically, it tends to spread to multiple sites rather than one, although there are unusual cases where there may be an isolated site of recurrence. Typically, patients have a prior cancer diagnosis, a prior breast cancer diagnosis, and a prior oncology team. In Western countries, only uh, about 10% of patients present with metastatic disease as their first signs of breast cancer. The majority have been treated before. In uh, underdeveloped countries, uh, there tends to be a much higher rate of developing, uh, presenting with metastatic disease because of lack of screening. The time from diagnosis to the development of metastatic disease varies. It could be months to many years later. Olivia Newton-John, uh, more than 20 years after her uh, breast cancer diagnosis. The time depends on the stage of the cancer at time of original diagnosis and the type of cancer. 
the stage being one, two, three, the type of cancer being ER positive, hormone positive, which tends to relapse later, versus triple negative or HER2 new positive, those are cancers that tend to relapse earlier. Of note, no one has shown that in early stage breast cancer, scans, PET scans, bone scans, or tumor markers help reduce the risk of recurrence or help to identify recurrence earlier, uh, or that they help to improve survival. So typically, uh, we follow patients clinically with symptoms, with exam, but we don't follow patients with scans and tumor markers. There is a fair amount of work being done right now looking at new things, uh, circulating tumor cells, uh, bone marrow uh, involvement by uh, tumor early on in the early stage breast cancer setting to see if that can help us alter the course of metastatic disease. But as of today, we don't have those tools yet. Prognosis. Prognosis depends on several factors. Uh, sites of recurrence, we know that people who have bone and lymph nodes do much better than people who have lung or liver or brain. Time from recurrence. Uh, the longer uh, it takes uh, the cancer to recur, the better the prognosis tends to be. The type of uh, tumor, uh, the features of the cancer, um, as well as other issues that the patient may have, other health issues that the patient may have. Typically, we think of metastatic disease as highly treatable but incurable. And for some patients, they do go into remission. Uh, and hopefully, as new drugs are developed, the number of patients that will have meaningful long remissions will increase, and, and we have to look to the future because the outcome has really improved over the last 10 years. Treatment decisions are based on estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, HER2 new receptor testing. And I think it's very important that when a woman has a diagnosis of metastatic disease, that a biopsy be done, if at all possible, uh, of the site of metastasis because it helps us, number one, confirm that it's metastatic breast cancer, that it's not another cancer, such as multiple myeloma that can go to bone. It also helps us uh, look at the ERPR HER2 new as there can be a change from the original cancer to the metastasis, and in 20% of cases, there may be a significant change. Uh, so I think that is very important, and also that biopsy can be what we use for genomic profiling, as we're going to talk about in a moment, um, because it's ideal to use the new site of metastasis to do your gene testing, your foundation testing, your keras testing, rather than to go back to the original breast cancer, as many changes could have happened in that tumor. In terms of treatments, many options exist today. If the cancer is hormone positive, there are many hormonal options, and oftentimes we combine those with newer drugs such as Afinitor, Palbocyclib, or other. If HER2 new positive, we have HER2 new targeted agents, uh, and we have a whole variety of chemotherapy agents. And the choice of treatment has to depend both on the features of the cancer, the ERPR, HER2 new that I just mentioned, but also on the extent of disease and the preferences of the woman uh, and her other health issues. So uh, the decision of the particular treatment and the sequence of treatment is complex and really involves a discussion between the patient and her healthcare team. Now let's move on and talk about genomic testing and understanding metastatic breast cancer. 
in the past, I told you, and the past was yesterday, we typically relied on rebiopsying uh, the uh, patient to confirm metastatic disease and to plan treatment, and typically we relied on the estrogen, progesterone, and HER2-new to define what treatment we were going to get. Now we have the option of genomics, which is basically looking at genetic changes that are specific to the cancer in that particular patient and in the metastatic site that can help guide treatment. Um, and this basically involves, again, sending the biopsy material to a lab for genomic sequencing. Uh, the labs that are currently doing this are a variety of labs in the United States, including Foundation Medicine, um, uh, Keras Testing, and many institutions are doing their own in-house uh, sequencing to look for genetic alterations. I think the reality is that it's likely that we're not going to just do testing once, but may want to look at testing several times in the course of a woman's uh, journey through metastatic disease uh, because cancers evolve and the cancer may have new genetic alterations now that it didn't have at the time of her original uh, diagnosis. There may be genes that are upregulated or downregulated. There are new, maybe new mutations that are acquired. So the concept of looking at the genetic profile of a cancer is, again, currently being done, uh, but the future may show us that we need to be doing it multiple times, uh, and uh, that is evolving. Again, I said the current platforms that are being used include uh, testing of tumor, which is what Foundation is doing, what Keras is doing, but there are several platforms that are called liquid biopsies where you can actually send blood and look for tissue-derived uh, DNA or tumor-derived DNA that can be uh, tested and can be analyzed to assess for genetic alterations. So uh, there's a lot of interest in looking at these liquid biopsies as a way of following a woman over time because it's clearly much easier than to keep rebiopsying patients as they progress on one therapy over another. Now, what are the uses of genomics? Basically, when you're sending off a test, you're looking for actionable alterations. You're looking for alterations that can guide treatment. We do this for a variety of reasons. The first reason to do genomic testing is to look for clinical trial possibilities. You're looking for clinical trials that may be targeted to the specific alteration that is present in that woman's tumor. There's some limitations to that. Uh, for example, not all patients are eligible for a trial even if they have a genetic alteration. The trial may not be available in a reasonable distance, within a reasonable distance to her home. Um, so there are uh, the, the reality of finding a trial is not always, uh, has not always been easy, but that is a reason why we do genomic profiling. We do it to select drug therapy. And the successes in that area have been when you find a genetic abnormality in, for example, BRCA1 or BRCA2. And you can find those in the blood of a woman uh, when it ha she has hereditary cancer, but sometimes you find that in the tumor only, and that's called the somatic alteration, something that happens only in the tumor. It's not a hereditary factor. In that case, we have agents called PARP inhibitors that can be very active and are currently approved for use in patients who have these alterations. So, uh, again, this is the potential exciting thing that you can pick a drug based on the genetic profile of the cancer. 
There are some limitations to this, however. There are uh, limits to the availability of drugs that target agents. For example, a very common mutated uh, gene in cancer of all types is P53, and we have no available drugs that target that alteration. Uh, our understanding of the pathways in the cancer cell are somewhat limited, so we sometimes have a hard time understanding what is a mutation that is driving the behavior of the cancer versus a tag-along mutation that may not be important. So even when looking at selecting drugs, it's not a perfect world. We may look at genomics to determine prognosis. Um, I don't think many of us are using it for that purpose. Um, and again, in the whole genomic testing process, we sometimes find alterations that are hereditary, that we call them germline abnormalities because they're present in the tumor, but they also may be present in the individual's blood. And that tells us information that can be useful for the family. It, it may not help that patient beyond selecting PARP inhibitors, but they may help us to guide management of family members as they're trying to make decisions about screening and such. When we think about precision medicine, we think of therapy specifically targeted to the individual's cancer and its features. So when I think of a good, great examples of precision medicine, I think of hormone therapy. Uh, that is precision medicine for estrogen receptor positive cancers. Uh, and now there's a little bit of information that maybe in the gene profiling world, the, if you find mutations in one of the estrogen receptor genes, it may help you look at fulvestrant over an aromatase inhibitor, for example. I think of the HER2 new therapies as precision medicine for HER2 new positive disease. And in the world of genomics, we may have uh, other precision therapy ideas, for example, Affinitor, uh, used to target the mTOR pathway when that is altered in a cancer, PARP inhibitors for BRCA1 and 2, um, uh, buparslib for a PI3 kinase mutations, Keytruda now approved for cancers that have microsatellite instability. So the reality is that hopefully this will continue to advance so that we have more drugs specifically targeting uh, mutations and we will be able to alter the course of many more of these cancers. Next, just to finish on diagnostic testing and technology, again, I mentioned that generally we use uh, uh, limited imaging at the time of uh, early stage breast cancer, but once a woman has metastatic disease, we use imaging tumor markers uh, to look for response and to follow women for response. We may use CAT scans, bone scans, PET scans, tumor markers as a way of looking to see uh, how the tumor is responding and the success of our therapy. In the future, this concept of liquid biopsy and this concept of uh, circulating tumor cells may be other ways to follow a patient to try to identify effectiveness of our drug and the development of resistance to our, resistance to our drugs. Uh, and I think it's a very interesting concept. Uh, so we may not be looking at this type of uh, imaging um, as much in the future, but today it's still our world. So with that, I'll stop and then later uh, take questions. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Donna. That was really outstanding and, and just a wonderful um, setting the stage for today's program. Lots of content for people 
and a lot of um, ideas for people to have questions. Um, so I'm sure there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Jennifer Metro. Dr. Metro is a physician, Rena Rowan Breast Cancer Center, uh, Abramson Cancer Center, Assistant Professor of Clinical Medicine, Division of Hematology Oncology, Perelman School of Medicine, University of Pennsylvania. And Dr. Metro is going to address the important role of clinical trials, examples of how clinical trial research may improve your care, controlling side effects, symptoms, and pain, and key questions to ask your healthcare team about your follow-up care and quality of life concerns. It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Metro. Thank you, Carolyn. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so as you, as you said, I'm going to talk about uh, uh, clinical trials and the role of clinical trials in metastatic breast cancer and how uh, ideally they'll help improve your care. And then uh, we'll transition and talk about uh, managing side effects from, from metastatic breast cancer treatment and how we manage symptoms and pain and important questions to make sure that you're asking your healthcare team. Uh, so clinical trials are a vital part of cancer care. Uh, every drug, old and new, that is currently approved uh, for the treatment of breast cancer was once evaluated in a clinical trial. And the goal of clinical trials is to ensure that new drugs are not only safe, but they're effective as well. Uh, there are different types of clinical trials. You may have heard terms like phase uh, one, two, or three. In general, most drugs are tested in humans first in phase one clinical trials. The aim of these trials is really to identify a safe dose at this point, how effective the medication really how effective the medication is is really a secondary uh, secondary goal. Once that optimal dose is identified, then the trial is open to a larger number of women uh, or men uh, and that would be considered an early phase two trial, and those are the studies that are then starting to determine if the drug, drug is effective. Uh, some of these phase one and two studies are open to, to all comers with multiple different types of cancer, and some are going to be specific to breast cancer and to certain specific subtypes of breast cancer. If in the phase one and two studies the drugs that drug is found to be safe and effective, then a larger uh, phase three study is open, and generally in breast cancer, those are geared to specific patient populations, and the, those are the populations that Dr. Grana mentioned, the hormone positive, the HER2 positive, uh, and triple negative. And the goal of a phase three trial is to gather data to show that a specific drug is, is safe and effective uh, and add something to the treatment of breast cancer so that it can then be approved by, uh, in the United States, the, the FDA, and in, in other countries, their, their governing body, and, and then be made available to everyone. There, it's important when you're looking into clinical trials to know what the design of the clinical trial is, uh, because they're not all the same. It's important to know what drugs are being offered in the trial and what you could potentially be exposed to. Some trials may only have one arm, so all of the subjects that enroll in that trial get the exact same treatment. But other trials are randomized, meaning a certain percentage, uh, usually half or two-thirds of the women get one type of treatment and the other half uh, or proportion get a different type of treatment. And one of those groups may get the new experimental drug and, and one group may not get that uh, experimental drug. Uh, a study is considered, is called blinded, if neither the patient who's on the trial or their doctor know which drug you're getting. 
it's pretty rare these days to have a trial where you can enroll and potentially get only a placebo, uh, meaning like a sugar pill or not an active cancer therapy. Uh, most of the, the trials that we have these days where uh, you would get a placebo, that placebo is combined with with an effective drug that we know with the goal being to see does adding this experimental drug versus a placebo improve the that that standard drug. Uh, so it's important to to ask questions about what type of trial is a good fit for me and when when a trial is appropriate. Uh, most women with metastatic breast cancer have a lot of excellent treatment options. Uh, that are standard and approved, depend, no matter if you're hormone positive, HER2 positive, or triple negative, we have very good medications uh, to offer that are available to everybody. Uh, but uh, as as treatment goes on and, and as you go through certain treatments, then uh, you might it, it will become time to start seeking out better things or potentially better things. So looking into phase two or three trials where we know the safety of the medicine, but the efficacy may not yet be certain. Uh, so in, in most cases, the type of trial that you want in this situation is where everyone gets a drug like a chemotherapy like paclitaxel, uh, that we know is effective for breast cancer, but then a certain number of the women on that trial also get a new and experimental drug with the goal of hopefully improving the outcomes that we see from the paclitaxel or whatever the, the standard drug is by itself. These trials are ideal for metastatic breast cancer because you know, you know you're getting an effective treatment no matter which arm you're in with the added possibility of getting something that could be better. If the experimental drug is indeed significantly better than the placebo or adds a benefit to standard therapy, it's possible that that study would be stopped early and women who didn't happen to get randomized to that arm where they got the drug would have the option to receive it. And then once we have the data that shows that a, that a new drug is, is useful, uh, it's submitted to the, to the FDA in the United States to, to be approved to be then made available to a larger population. Phase one studies are, uh, are special situations uh, where the drugs are in very early development. And generally, these are, are mostly appropriate for women who have exhausted all standard therapy options. With the advances that have been made in breast cancer in the last five to ten years, it's pretty unusual for a woman to reach the end of the end of the menu of options of standard approved drugs. Uh, but if there's if if you haven't had much luck with the, the a few different types of medications that you've had more recently, then a phase one trial would be something uh, that you would be motivated to seek out. Uh, even if you enroll on a clinical trial and don't actually get the experimental drug, you're still playing a really important role in advancing the treatment of breast cancer. Every drug that has been approved was first tested on volunteers, and not all volunteers actually received that medication. As many uh, many of the listeners uh, may be on or have been on drugs like Ibrantz or Verzenio or Linparza or Progetta, or Ketsyla, these are all relatively new drugs in our arsenal. Uh, and when you take those drugs, you're benefiting from the fact that women years ago were willing to participate in a clinical trial to prove that those drugs actually were effective. Not all women who enrolled on those trials actually got a benefit from the drug, but their contributions are no less important. So when you participate in a clinical trial, 
we hope that the trial will directly benefit you by extending your life or improving your symptoms, but even if you don't get a noticeable benefit, you're still playing a really important and essential role in advancing the treatment of breast cancer. And while most trials are therapeutic trials, meaning there's a drug that's being investigated, there are also trials out there that are that are not therapeutic, but they're looking at uh, ways to improve how we monitor breast cancer or detect breast cancer. Uh, so Dr. Grana talked about how how we monitor breast cancer with scans and tumor markers, and there are some studies looking at better imaging modalities, such as PET scans that have uh, an estrogen uh, tracer as opposed to a sugar tracer. Uh, and these trials uh, may not necessarily directly benefit you as an individual patient, uh, but serves to improve our knowledge and, and hopefully improve the way that we monitor and detect cancer in future patients. Uh, so how can clinical research improve your care? Uh, when you are on a clinical trial, uh, more often than not, you're followed by a clinical trial nurse. This would be somebody who's specifically associated with that trial, uh, in addition to your usual care team. And patients on trials may be seen more frequently uh, or have additional testing than would be considered standard of care. So you may have more frequent blood tests or imaging tests uh, more often. So, uh, and the reason that, that that's built into the study is so that we can monitor for side effects and toxicity and detect these things as early as possible to minimize the risk of more serious uh, complications happening from these drugs that are relatively new. We also want to know as soon as possible if the experimental treatment is working or not working. Uh, so you may have scans at shorter intervals, such as uh, maybe after two months as opposed to three to six months, which is uh, generally more common if you're not on a trial. But the primary way that clinical research will actually benefit you is that it gives you access to a, to a new and promising drug before it's actually approved for general use. And the possibility of getting this benefit, we understand, is what primarily motivates patients to seek out clinical trials, but certainly the opportunity to be involved in research and to contribute to the advancement of the field is also an important benefit. And we as physicians and researchers understand it's not reasonable to ask patients to subject themselves to, clinical, to, the, to the risks of a clinical trial if there's no potential for any benefit to you. So shifting gears uh, from clinical trials, I'm going to spend some time talking about how we manage side effects, uh, symptoms, and pain. And when you have metastatic breast cancer, because we can't cure it, the goal is to contain it and to minimize toxicity and maximize quality of life. We want to make sure that you're feeling as good as possible so that you can live a full, uh, enriched life with uh, as few side effects and, and, and discomfort as possible. Uh, we often have to find a tricky balance between improving symptoms that are caused by the cancer and not causing too many side effects from the medications that we give you uh, so that you don't feel worse from the drugs than you do from the cancer itself. Uh, pretty much any medication or chemotherapy cancer treatment that you get is going to have side effects, uh, and so it's important that we, that we manage those and monitor for those. Uh, in metastatic breast cancer, uh, it's not, we don't generally use multiple chemotherapy drugs uh, at the same time. So most women who develop metastatic disease were at some point uh, previously 
they had uh, their breast cancer surgery for an early stage breast cancer, and they may have had uh, multi-agent chemotherapy. So many of you may be familiar with regimens like AC or TC or ACT or TCH. And those are very toxic regimens uh, with more than one chemotherapy drug. Uh, with few exceptions, we generally don't use those toxic regimens in metastatic breast cancer because the side effects are, are just unacceptable when one of the primary goals is quality of life. Rather, we often use one chemotherapy at a time, or if, you're, if you have a hormone-positive or HER2-positive breast cancer, we may combine a hormone pill or hormone medication with a targeted pill, such as Ibrantz or Verzenio or, or Affinitor. And the HER2-directed drugs like Herceptin and Progetta may be combined with a chemotherapy. Uh, but by using fewer toxic drugs at once, we can minimize side effects such as nausea and fatigue and decrease blood counts and really allow uh, the drugs to, to just treat the cancer, uh, alleviate some of the symptoms that the cancer causes, but without increasing toxicity. Uh, nonetheless, we, we realize that side effects are going to happen, and so that's one of our big goals is to control and manage them as, as best we can. Uh, so nausea medications uh, are used liberally, medications to help prevent constipation or to treat diarrhea, uh, and pain management is a, is a central part of any care plan. Many cancer centers will offer same-day appointments if you're having really bad side effects from, from the chemotherapy or treatment uh, to be evaluated if you're having diarrhea or dehydration or to be evaluated for fevers. And oftentimes supportive care like IV fluids can be arranged either in the office or even at home. And the primary goal uh, with these services is to make sure that you're feeling good so that your treatments can continue un uninterrupted and that you can continue living uh, an active life. Uh, metastatic breast cancer causes symptoms itself, uh, pain from bone metastases, uh, some women experience weight loss or abdominal bloating or swelling, and we really work very intensely to manage these symptoms. Pain in particular is a very common symptom that we have many different ways to address using both medical therapy and local therapy such as radiation. Uh, if you have a painful metastasis to a bone, radiation to that area can often provide fast and durable relief, uh, even quicker than starting a new medication for the cancer. And then if you still have pain, uh, many different medication options. Uh, things like Tylenol and Motrin uh, can be an option if the pain isn't too severe. Uh, but if over-the-counter medications aren't sufficient, then prescription medications such as opioids may be recommended. And uh, yes, there's been a lot in the news recently about opioid and narcotic addiction and abuse, and certainly that's something that we always keep in mind. But we have to be realistic and acknowledge that, that patients with metastatic cancer have reasons for real pain, and opioids are excellent at helping to control that pain. Uh, in general, we start with the lowest dose possible and give it as infrequently as possible, and then we titrate from there uh, and increase the dose or, or uh, increase the frequency as we need to. And it's possible that over time, the dose may, that is used to control your pain may increase, but that's generally not a sign of addiction. It's just a sign of your body getting used to the medication, and, and a slightly higher dose may be ne needed to get the same effect. Uh, and then there are other medicines that we can use to supplement opioids uh, with uh, the hope of uh, 
keeping the opioid dose as low as possible, so medications that help with nerve pain like gabapentin and duloxetine, Lyrica, and then other medications we often use for more than one purpose, such as Remeron. It's an antidepressant that helps with insomnia and with weight loss. Uh, so combining some of these medications really we, uh, gives us a multi-pronged approach to, to manage these symptoms. And also medical marijuana is now available in many states uh, and can help with pain, nausea, and other symptoms that are related to cancer and to cancer-directed treatment. Uh, unfortunately, not all oncologists are certified to prescribe medical marijuana, so if that's something that you're interested in, you may have to seek out a specific uh, certified provider. And finally, non-medical interventions such as acupuncture, massage, physical therapy may be appropriate in certain situations. Uh, but the bottom line is we have many different things to offer to make you feel as good as possible, to keep you active and on treatment uh, and able to do the things that you want to do for as long as possible. It's important always to discuss your symptoms and side effects with your care team to ensure that you have access to all of these services. Uh, and, and with that, the, some important questions to always ask your care team about how you're going to be followed up and about quality of life. Uh, as you go through your cancer treatment, you want to make sure that you're being open and honest about how you're feeling. You want to ask what the likely side effects of the medications that you're receiving are going to be so that you can be most prepared. Uh, you want to know how often you'll be seen, how often you'll see the doctor versus the nurse if your care team, uh, if you have a, a care team that in, includes multiple uh, providers. Uh, you're going to want to know how how are we going to know that the medicine is working. Uh, as Dr. Grana said, in general, the most uh, common way that we follow uh, breast cancer is is by scans, so CAT scans, PET scans. If we see an area of the cancer growing uh, or new areas forming, then we know the, the medication isn't working. If we see the areas shrinking, uh, then that's a sign that the medication is working. And scans are usually done every three to six months or so, depending on the specific situation. You'll want to know how, how uh, what labs are being monitored, how often these should be, these should be checked. Uh, generally, standard blood work, such as blood counts, kidney and liver function tests are going to be checked to, um, to make sure that it's safe to continue treatment. And then uh, the tumor markers that Dr. Grana mentioned are also monitored. Uh, they can be helpful if the number is rising. That suggests that uh, the cancer may be growing. If the number is going down, that's reassuring that, uh, that the cancer is responding. Uh, but the numbers themselves are not specific, and in and of themselves don't necessarily mean the cancer is growing, even if they're rising. The only way we know for sure if a cancer is growing is if we see it on a scan that something is, is getting bigger, that a new spot formed. So in general, uh, those tumor markers should really just be used as a guide to help determine how frequently you get scans. So if the numbers are going down, you feel good. The interv interval between scans can be longer. If the numbers are going up, that might be a reason to get a scan sooner. Um, and you also want to know uh, to ask what your doctor is thinking next. Uh, so if you know, even if the medicine you're on right now is working well, uh, having a sense of what your doctor is thinking can be helpful. If they think you're a good candidate for a clinical trial, it could be useful to start that search process in advance. Uh, so if you have to make an appointment at another uh, cancer center uh, to kind of get your foot in the door, uh, that can be useful uh, so that when you actually need the trial, 
you kind of have a, a leg up already and, and have gotten the process started. And you want to make sure that the the, uh, that you ask uh, how the, the team is going to ensure that you feel the best you can. Uh, and this goes back to my comments about managing symptoms of cancer and the side effects of treatment. Um, and it, it may also incorporate considerations about how you want the end of life to be, such as where you want to be and what kind of treatment you want. And this isn't a conversation that you need to have at every visit, but something that should be discussed from time to time so that uh, your family and your care team know what your wishes are and uh, and can make sure to honor them. Uh, but in general, we have excellent uh, – the, the the landscape of, of breast cancer treatment has, has really remarkably changed uh, over the last couple of years because of the benefit uh, that we've seen from new drug developments uh, and new symptomatic uh, medications, and, and really uh, we're seeing women – do better for longer than we have before. And with that, I'll, I'll pause and, and um, pass it on to you back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Natra. That was really wonderful. It's just a very comprehensive and really very engaging presentation in terms of all the different areas that you covered, the clinical trials, the treatment side effect management, um, just really um, excellent. So I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. They actually are coming in now, so we'll soon move to them. And our next speaker is Ms. Mary Rose Mongelli. Ms. Mongelli is an oncology social worker, and she's the Women's Cancer Program Coordinator here at Cancer Care. And then Ms. Mongelli will... Um, identify for all of you the all of Cancer Care's free psychosocial services and programs and the role of support groups. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, uh, Ms. Mongelli. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. I just wanted to say I'm so happy to be a part of the program today. Um, <clears throat> yes, as Dr. Mesner um, mentioned, I am the Women's Cancers Program Coordinator here at Cancer Care, and I have worked with uh, many women diagnosed with both uh, breast cancer and metastatic breast cancer. Um, today we have been talking a lot about um, genomic testing, personalizing your care, and the importance of clinical trials. And I'd also like to um, talk about the importance of creating a support network. You can actually personalize this as part of, the, uh, as part of your care. And I'd like to speak about how cancer care can be a part of that. Um, cancer care is a national nonprofit organization that provides uh, free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Um, cancer care's programs include individual counseling if you're within um, the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. Um, we offer face-to-face -face, um, and telephone counseling. Um, if you're national, we have telephone counseling. We also run support groups um, uh, through um, by the telephone as well as in person um, and online. Um, we have um, educational programs, practical help, assistance navigating the healthcare system, and some limited financial assistance. All our services provided by licensed master social workers, um, and our complete, these services are completely free of charge. Um, our oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or her family and friends. We are also trained to help patients and their support 
tackle the problems that accompany the disease, such as financial demands, physical challenges, social adjustment, and the psychological impact. Adjusting and finding new ways of coping with the diagnosis of metastatic breast cancer um, that I just mentioned is an important part of the healing process. As you may know, cancer affects the whole person and the entire family. Asking for help as a patient caregiver or loved one by joining a support group or by contacting a social worker for counseling is a sign of strength. You do not have to walk this path alone. Joining a support group is a way to connect with others who are going through a similar situation or experiencing similar problems. Individual counseling provides a safe space that is just yours to voice any concern and navigate any of the issues I mentioned earlier. These connections help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer and their loved ones experience. Feeling emotionally well can help you better deal with the diagnosis and the treatment. At this time, Cancer Care offers online support groups uh, for people with breast cancer and metastatic breast cancer. Um, we also offer a, tele a specific telephone support group for metastatic breast cancer. Um, we provide both patient and caregiver groups in a face-to-face -face format in the New York area, on the telephone nationally, and online nationally and internationally. We currently offer, a, as I mentioned, a dedicated metastatic breast cancer online and telephone support group. If you're interested in any of Cancer Care Services, please call our HOPE line at 1-800-813-HOPE or 4673, or you can visit our website, which is cancercare.org. Um, Cancer Care's website is very comprehensive, and you can find a lot of information, not only on support, but on all of our programs, as well as on cancer diagnoses, treatment, and ways of coping as you go through this journey. Our website, on our website, you can also register for future workshops and our online support groups. Um, we have learned a lot from today's program, and there's a lot of information to digest. Our social workers can help you understand what it means for you and your loved ones. Should you have any questions about today's workshop or about our services, please don't hesitate to contact us. At this time, I'd really like to turn it over to Dr. Mesner. Um, thank you for having me on this program. Oh, thank you so much, Mary Rose. That was really outstanding and wonderful and a really call out to the services that people can access. Um, so although this is an hour workshop, um, at the conclusion of the workshop, you all have, you can contact our staff here for ongoing support, and that's really important. Now we have time for questions. We have a lot of time for questions, so I'm going to ask Sandra to bring all of our speakers on board for the questions. And I'm going to um, take, we have quite a few questions that have come in um, online, so I'm going to start with those questions to begin with. Um, and um, so um, uh, there's a question here. Um, I'm going to give this question. I'm going to start with um, Dr. Um, Grana. This question is for you. Um, so I have extensive bone metastasis, including spine. I currently get um, quarterly, three-monthly bone scan and, and CT chest, abdomen, and pelvis. Is this the correct evaluation scans or should MRI or PET be a part? 
Thanks. And we understand that, of course, Dr. Grana doesn't have access to all of your records, so we do want you to go back to your treating healthcare team. But I think Dr. Grana maybe could give some uh, general information that would help everybody on the call in terms of your question, just in, in terms of that. So that work for you, Dr. It's, uh, it's difficult to know how to answer that, not knowing what kind of a response you've had to your treatment and uh, whether you're on hormonal therapy or chemotherapy and whether there are other sites of disease. So, But let me give it a shot. If I have a woman who has bone-only metastatic disease who I am going to put on a hormonal therapy, I tend to follow uh, her scans and I tend to get tumor markers. If the tumor markers are elevated, I'll repeat those every couple of months. Uh, if they're improving, wonderful, that gives me some reassurance. If they're not improving or they're rising, that, that tells me that my imaging may need to be done sooner. In a woman who's hormone positive with bone-only disease, I tend to follow scans less often. I tend to follow scans every four to six months and try to spread them out as much as possible unless there is more concern. I tend to follow a different approach when I have a woman on chemotherapy because, again, the chemotherapy drugs tend to be more toxic. So that's a woman that I'm much more likely to follow scans every three months or every three cycles of chemotherapy sometimes uh, to see if the drug is working and if not working to stop it and change to something else. So in terms of are these the right tests, these are the right tests. Uh, I, I use tumor markers as well. Uh, is there anything to be gained by PET scan or MRI? Not very much. And in the future, there may be things like circulating tumor cells that can help, but right now that's not the standard of care. Thank you. Um, and um, question for Dr. Metro, um, and this is just a general question. What type of breast cancer recurs the most? Uh, well, that's a that's an interesting question. So the the risk of recurrence depends on a couple of different things. So um, the 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 more advanced the stage at diagnosis, the more likely it is to recur. So if you have a stage three cancer, that's more likely to recur than a stage one. And then the specific subtype of breast cancer, uh, triple negative and HER2 positive breast cancers tend to recur more often than hormone-positive breast cancers. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and then another question. I'm going to just rotate back to um, Grana. Um, is there such a categorization as early metastasized breast cancer? Uh, there is really no such thing, but there is an entity called oligometastatic or single-site metastatic disease, which is a really rare entity, but it's the woman who on all of her staging, you may only find one spot, whether it's a spot in the lung or there's a spot in the liver or a lymph node or such. And we tend to treat those people more aggressively, but we don't have any data that treating them more aggressively necessarily changes the picture. We have data from other cancers like colon cancer that if you have an isolated nodule that is colon cancer and you remove it, that those patients do better 
in breast cancer, the data is very, very questionable. But I would say that in the rare case where you find that, and I mean the rare case, we do tend to often remove them or radiate it uh, and still give that woman therapy. So if she's estrogen positive, hormonal therapy. If she's HER2 new positive, uh, uh, HER2 new base therapy. If she's triple negative, I tend to still give them some chemotherapy. But uh, again, this is a small number. By and large, I don't think of metastatic breast cancer as uh, early metastatic breast cancer. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and another question for Dr. Matro. Um, when a metastasis starts in the bone, does it tend to be a constant pain or intermittent? And again, that would be a general question to address because, of course... Yes. Some, some air metastases in the bone don't cause any pain uh, at all. Uh, it's generally when, uh, if if the area has gotten larger or uh, one of the risks of cancer going to the bone is it can make the bones weaker and increase the risk of fracture. So if you have a fracture associated with a cancer spot in the bone, then that can cause pain. And if it's untreated, uh, that pain may get worse. Uh, this is how some women come to attention after they've been treated for their initial early stage breast cancer is they may have a pain in a rib or a pain in the back or a pain in the hip that isn't typical of your usual exercise achiness or exercise-induced pains, uh, and it's getting worse, uh, and, and that would lead to imaging to, to evaluate that. But um, when when in, in when there's a spot that's that's small, it's not necessarily going to cause any problems at all. Uh, but it's if they if they continue to grow, that they can cause pain, and at that point, uh, rate is when things like radiation might be offered. Excellent, thank you. And actually, um, Sandra, I realize you went right into these online questions and didn't even give instructions about how to ask questions. So I think we should go ahead and do that. Um, so, Sandra, if you would give instructions to people on how to, even though we have plenty of questions here, still we want to give everyone a chance to ask a question. So if you would explain to people how to queue up for questions, that would be terrific. Of course. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star and then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit a question by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from Stephanie C. Your line is open. Yes, thank you so much, Carolyn. It's excellent, excellent um, cancer uh, seminar. I like, I have two questions. The first one I have is I'm a HER2 positive breast cancer survivor, 12 years. I'd like to know um, do they still do the axillary node dissection, even though the lymph, if it's in two lymph nodes and then all the lymph nodes are taken out? And number two, I'd like to know more about the clinical trials being done on studies on for pain management of Tai Chi or Qigong, yoga or acupuncture or chiropractor or any laser therapy and acupuncture uh, for pain management. Thank you so much. Thank you, Stephanie. Um, thank you. And um, Dr. Nature, do you want to address the um, pain part of this, the pain management part of this? Sure, I'll, I'll I'll give it a shot. I I don't have a ton of information specifically about all of those modalities, but uh, I I do know that there are trials that are that are looking at these sort of alternative non-medical based interventions. Uh, there, it's not so much relevant to metastatic breast cancer, but acupuncture was shown about a year ago to help with the achiness that and joint pains that are. Uh, caused by aromatase inhibitors. 
So we do know that 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 acupuncture does help with certain types of pain, um, but in, in terms of specific uh, those other specific modalities, I don't have uh, I don't have uh, information about a specific clinical trial, but I. I do believe that they are ongoing, and uh, if if that's something you're interested in, there are different websites to look to look at to to find where they are being offered. Like in the United States, clinicaltrials.gov actually tells you in the United States and in uh, and around the world where different trials are. Thank you. And our next question. Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Lynn S. Your line is now open. Hi, wonderful program today. Two questions, one for each one of these terrific oncologists. First is for Dr. Grana. I was just wondering what you're observing, what type of cancers are coming up with high, high microsatellite instability that would allow them to be candidates for Keytruda. And the second question would be for our oncologist, is it Dr. Natro of University of Pennsylvania regarding the use of tumor mar- markers in tracking metastatic disease are you finding them equally effective in both um, triple negative tumors as well as estrogen positive tumors? Thank you both. Thanks, Lynn. Thanks so, I will answer the one about microsatellite instability. And unfortunately, uh, microsatellite instability is uncommon in breast cancer. Um, In the data that's been published, uh, you're likely to find MSI high in maybe 25 to 5% of breast cancers. They're more likely to be triple negative, although I don't know that it's an absolute that it must be triple negative, but that's the population that... um, one is more likely to look for those in. That may not be the marker. Right now, that's how we're getting Keytruda approved in metastatic breast cancer because there's an indication for Keytruda in any cancer of any organ that has microsatellite instability. But in the future, there may be other markers. We know that certain drugs in lung will rely on PD-1, PD-L1 markers. Uh, There are some people that are looking at mutation burden as an indication of some the activity of some of these immune therapies. So uh, I think the future may be very different than the world we're living in today. I also have found it interesting that uh, we've been able to get uh, Keytruda approved uh, through compassionate use in some patients that are not meeting the criteria of MSI high. Um, So, again, I think it's an evolving field. Excellent. Well, thank you. That's excellent. Well, and, and Dr. Major, do you want to address the other questions? Yeah, I can address the the tumor marker question. So I don't know that there's that there's real data that that cert, that tumor markers are more reliable in in different types of breast cancer. But I would say, in my own experience, uh, what I've noticed is that women who have liver metastases tend to have higher numbers. Uh, the the value of the tumor marker may be higher than women, for example, who have bone only metastatic disease. Uh, and there are a good proportion of women whose cancers don't make these markers at all. Uh, so you check them in the blood and they're not elevated. Uh, and I would say, again, in, only in my own experience that triple negative breast cancers are more common, uh, more commonly this, uh, those cases where they don't make them. Uh, hopefully that answers, hopefully that answers your question. Thank you. Oh, thanks so much. And um, so there's a question here about um, 
So um, I have a Dr. Metro. Recommendations to deal with long-term effects of radiation treatments. Um, skin and muscle tightening, loss of mobility. I can no longer work on a computer daily due to um, 34 radiation treatments to, to right breast area and underarm. So is there, um, in terms of long-term effects of radiation, if you could just comment yeah, on that? Yes, yeah, so I'm sorry that you're, that you're dealing with that. Uh, there are some women who have more long-term effects than others from radiation. Radiation, uh, and it also depends on where the radiation was given and, and uh, what type, so if it was the, the breast or the chest wall, if you had a reconstruction, uh, and also how many lymph nodes were removed, because uh, the more lymph nodes you, that were removed, if you also get radiation, that's more likely to lead to things like lymphedema. But radiation can cause constriction and tightening of the skin and muscles and sort of like a just a scar tissue picture. Um, and really just doing massage and, and moisturizer and stretching exercises to keep those muscles as loose as possible uh, is the best way to, to counter it. But oftentimes it's not reversible, but but by doing some of those stretches and massage and exercises, you can prevent it from getting worse. Excellent. Thank you. And this question which we um, came up, uh, this is one of our an online question um, for Dr. Grana, um, who should have breast MRIs? Um, so... It's an interesting question. In the metastatic setting, no one should have breast MRIs, but breast MRIs, if they're going to be used, should be used in early-stage breast cancer or in high-risk women who have not had breast cancer. MRIs are recommended for women who carry mutations in BRCA1 or 2 or CHECK2 or uh, P53, some of those hereditary forms of breast cancer. So if a woman has not had cancer but has a genetic abnormality, she should be followed with yearly MRI and mammogram. If a woman has early-stage breast cancer and she had a lumpectomy and radiation and she has one of these mutations, she should be followed with MRI. There are other women who don't have cancer that have benign biopsies, a family history, but no mutation or certain other features that may meet insurance criteria for MRI as a screening tool. But again, here we're talking about using it as a screening tool to enhance the effectiveness of mammogram, and it's useful in select populations. Um, and this will be our last question. I'm going to ask both Dr. Grana and Dr. Maitre to address this one. Um, Dr. Brown, if you can start with it. I'm a triple positive. I'm triple positive and was diagnosed de novo with metastatic breast cancer one year ago. I've heard from long-term thrivers that they had a mastectomy. Any studies on if a mastectomy helps prolong survival of stage four, or is it not a standard of care now, and why? So, I'm assume, well, I guess two questions. The first is, if uh, this is a reoccurrence, uh, if a woman who had treatment for early-stage disease and then develops metastatic disease, there is absolutely no data that mastectomy in that setting plays any role whatsoever. Where there is a question um, and not an absolute answer yet is in the woman who, at the time of her diagnosis of breast cancer, already has metastatic disease. So newly diagnosed breast cancer with metastatic disease, there's been a lot of debate as to how to manage the breast and whether managing the breast will improve survival. There have been studies that have shown an improvement in survival 
when the breast is managed with surgery and or radiation. And there have equally been studies that suggest that it may actually be detrimental, that it may be harmful. And there is a study that was done in which women were assigned to one or to either manage the breast now or delay it. And we don't have results of that study yet. So I think this is a case where the management needs to be individualized. Uh, but it shouldn't be done at the beginning. It should be done once the systemic disease is stabilized. And again, it should really only be for that woman who's newly diagnosed with metastatic disease as her diagnosis, not the woman who happens to recur and also recur in the breast or elsewhere. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Mato, did you want to add to that? No, I I, I agree, agree entirely that, that the data is really mixed and, and the main uh one of the big motivators to, to do a surgery I think is if there if the breast itself is actually causing symptoms. So if there is ulceration or pain uh that that a surgery would actually help manage symptoms, then that's uh more of a reason to consider it uh again once the systemic disease is under control. Yeah, and I guess I I think the one entity where we probably do that again is the locally advanced, ulcerated, or inflammatory, where we're much more likely to manage that at some point. But again, the jury is very much out. Yep. Thank you. Well, and I should tell everyone that, first of all, we do have a program next week on triple negative breast cancer, actually on Tuesday. And we will be doing a post-San Antonio breast cancer symposium in December. Um, we don't have a date confirmed yet, but it will be in sometime mid-December um, so that there's more information coming forth, so stay tuned. But this has been an extraordinary call. I want to thank both Dr. Grana, uh, Dr. Macho, and Ms. Bongelli. Just This is an extra extraordinary call. I think it's one of the most amazing calls we've had in our history of doing these breast cancer programs just because it's covered in a whole new transformative way of treating breast cancer to some extent. And so you've gotten, you've gotten the most up-to-date information you could probably get as of today. Um, and I'm, I guess I'm inviting you all to stay tuned for future programs. Um, and, of course, um, now I know there are many of you who have questions um, that we have not gotten to, so I want to be sure to address your concerns right away. So for those of you who still have questions, and I know there are many of you still with questions, um, I uh, would encourage you to, of course, speak to your healthcare team. They know you best. They know all the details of your particular type of cancer, and so you definitely want to speak with them. In addition to that, many of you like to go other places for information, so we do recommend that you contact the National Cancer Institute. They have a toll-free number at 1-800-422-6237, but they also have a website, www.cancer.gov, and what's wonderful about that website, both for people in the U.S. and internationally, is that actually that website actually um, has a live chat feature where you can post your question. Um, it would be um, a U.S. time, uh, probably Eastern time. I believe it goes from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. You can post your question, and the information specialist will answer those questions online with you back and forth and try to get anything they can do to help you with your, your question or how to get your question answered. Um, in addition to that... Um, we are partnering with many different um, breast cancer organizations on today's program, and they, of course, all have very uh, helpful websites as well with information. And you'll be getting, at the end of today's program, you'll get an evaluation form, um, and you'll be getting all the links to anything we've mentioned during the program as a resource. Also, the um, National Cancer Institute does have um, a clinical trial uh, website, www.clinicaltrials.gov. Again, all of this you'll be getting at the end of today's program. 
um, all that information will be you'll be getting it again. Um, and I should stress to all of you that probably most importantly, as we're about to conclude the program, we don't want any one of you to feel you're alone. We want you to know that you're now part of a community of support here, um, that although you all couldn't see each other, um, we do want to help all of you um, so that you may contact Cancer Care at the end of the call if you have particular questions, actually some of the practical issues that you may want help with, um, either practical concerns or counseling services. We now have 138 online support groups for different types of cancer, many on breast cancer, many for caregivers. So that's a wonderful resource as well. And you can either uh, email us, um, call our 800 number, or you may um, actually um, go to our website and sign up for some of those things there as well. So um, we don't want you to feel you're alone, that these services, although the program will soon end, the services that you can access from Cancer Care and all the different collaborating organizations, those continue endlessly for you all. Um, and again, I want to thank you all for your participating today. I want to remind you all also that we actually do have a meditation app. Um, it's a wonderful, uh, many of you have taken advantage of it. It's, uh, many of you have found it helpful. Certainly when you're undergoing uh, when you're coping with metastatic triple negative, when you're coping with triple negative um, breast cancer or metastatic breast cancer, you definitely have there's some degree of stress in your life, certainly. And a meditation app can be very helpful to you. So I encourage you to um, go to our website. You'll get information about the link. And take advantage of that just for managing your stress. And again, um, we do have a program on next Tuesday on metastatic triple negative breast cancer, and we will have a program in December on the post-San Antonio um, uh, uh, conference that, will happen, that happens every year. So thank you all for your participation, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day. <laughs>